our guest speaker today. Jeff served uh, several of the men yesterday, our men's breakfast, from uh, a passage from Romans 12. And I think for all who were there, um, it was both, uh, it was a challenging message, uh, but it was also envisioning and hopeful um, uh, as he ministered God's grace to us from God's words. So uh, Jeff is the founding pastor, lead pastor of um, Christ Church South Philly. And if you were to look that up on the web, uh, you'd see a picture of knowing him um, and Angie, but you'd see the uh, other uh, couples that are serving with them as they uh, really have established uh, uh, a new community rooted in the gospel, uh, making, multiplying, and maturing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in a part of of Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, that uh, had little um, gospel influence. And so we give God the glory for that, um, as Jeff would, but we're grateful for, um, for, this is Jeff's second visit, first time for his family, second visit to Crossway, he came last spring. Um, and part of our desire inviting him is not only uh, because he's a, he's a gospel minister and have his family come as part of their vacation. But we are connected through Trinity Fellowship Churches, which is the denomination uh, Jeff is a founding, their church is a founding uh, church of that. We're part of that too. So we're glad to welcome you back, really all of you. And uh, can we appreciate Jeff as he comes this morning? There we go. There we go. I got it. All right. Thank you. Why don't I go back and re-go and tell my jokes about the Patriots again? Um, no, last year, uh, it was great to have the Boston Red Sox in town, and it was, uh, it was the biggest chapel service that I've ever had. Um, and so you should be encouraged. I don't know how well they are this year. Maybe they're not doing as spiritually well. Maybe that's why they're not performing as well. But... Um, but, uh, but, but, but they, it was great to be with them last year and uh, to see God's work uh, taking place there. And I do feel like Boston reminds me a lot of Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia has a kind of rivalry thing going with New York. Uh, but I feel like Boston, there's a lot of like affinity because uh, like, like, like your city in Boston, uh, you know, we in Philly have really Irish and Italian roots. Uh, that's what we are. We're a blue collar city. Uh, and so yesterday we had a great time going down into Providence, which I know is in Boston, but just seeing the Italian influence there uh, reminds a lot of home. And, uh, and so it's sweet to be able to 
come up to this area, and the one thing that is very different from here in Philadelphia is it's a lot more green up here. And so we are enjoying that uh, immensely uh, as Philadelphia is, uh, oh, it's a concrete jungle. And so my kids are like, what is this stuff? I'm like, that's grass, children. Um, <laughs> so... It's, uh, it's, it's been great to be able to get around. Our, um, our church in Philadelphia sends you greetings. They are praying for you this morning. Um, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They love you. We planted that church um, about eight years ago. Well, nine years ago is when I moved in. We officially launched eight years ago this past March and are so grateful for God's work there. And your church is really an encouraging uh, inspiration for us. I remember when Bauer planted this church uh, 23 years ago, uh, and so that was long before I was in ministry, uh, probably before I was out of high school, and, um, and, and, but just seeing someone take, uh, take a step of faith and follow the Lord, um, it, it was honestly very inspiring to me and encouraging to me, and one of the examples that I looked to as, uh, as I sought to plant a church in the city of Philadelphia to see what God is doing up here, and so grateful for you, brother, good for your family, it's great to meet all your kids this morning uh, for the first time, and Grateful to be with you all here. And I'm grateful so much for what we're building together in Trinity Fellowship Churches. Um, because, you know, I, I, I didn't anticipate us having to, uh, at some point, start a denomination. But, man, it's actually been a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun to build with men that I deeply respect, like Bauer, like Paul Buckley, whom I know you know well, uh, Jacob Young, and, and other men. And just to see men who are passionate about the gospel and are passionate about doing something together that's bigger than anything we could ever do by ourselves. Uh, I was freshly grateful for that this past spring when I had the privilege uh, of going overseas to a country that's um, where I can't mention it on the live stream because they are being persecuted for their faith. And so I was working with some pastors in the underground church. And as we were going over there and just trying to discern how we could, how we could meet their needs and care for them, um, it was so encouraging to my soul to be able to be thinking through how we could be an encouragement to that church, not just the limited resources of my local church, but thinking through it from a denominational level. How can we as a denomination come over and care for these Christians who are undergoing so much persecution, and yet God is doing so many incredible things. And so I don't have any great plans to roll out to you uh, this morning, but it was just encouraging to be over there, um, to one, be inspired by their faith, but to see that we, there's a whole denomination that I was representing, and to see how together we could do something, even in another part of the world, for the glory of Christ. And so uh, it is good to be in this denomination together, and I'm very excited for our future. We are small, we are lean, uh, but God can do a lot through a little, and we are excited for what he's going to do through Trinity Fellowship Churches. With that being said, please open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Colossians, chapter 4. And as you turn to the book of Colossians, I recently heard a true story that was about a pretty extraordinary rescue. It took place all the way out in Littleton, Colorado, where Jamie Munson and her husband were on a shopping trip. And as they were coming back from the shopping trip, they, they, they pulled behind a silver minivan that was on a highway going incredibly slow, about 10 miles per hour. They went to go around the minivan because no one wants to go behind a minivan going 10 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, the minivan starts swerving all over the road and then did a complete about face and started going towards oncoming traffic. As their car passed by them, they looked over and were horrified to see that the driver was asleep, had fallen asleep behind 
the wheel. Jamie's husband tried to get behind the car and immediately start flashing his lights and honking his horn, but of course he couldn't do that for so long because there was oncoming traffic coming and the driver was not responding to his efforts. But before he could get back into the right side of the traffic, Jamie did something extraordinary. She opened the door and jumped out of the car, started running next to this car, banging on the window. The driver still did not wake, and so she opened the car door, jammed on the emergency brake, put the car into park, and it skidded to a stop just as oncoming traffic started rushing by. When the police showed up to the scene, they informed Jamie that what had happened was the driver was a diabetic, and he had gone into insulin shock, and she had undoubtedly saved his life. As I heard that story, I was struck by that extraordinary rescue and how it came from a pretty ordinary person who was living an otherwise pretty ordinary day. And I say that because in our passages today, we're going to see that God is on an extraordinary rescue mission. God is rescuing people in an extraordinary way, but the way he wants to do that extraordinary rescue is by using ordinary people who are doing otherwise ordinary things. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Colossians, just to situate you in this beautiful uh, letter, it's written by Paul to the church in Colossae. In chapter 1, it was all about how Jesus is Lord. There is none like him. Colossians 2 is all about how Jesus brings liberty. There is freedom in him. Colossians 3 is all about how Jesus shapes our life. There is guidance that he, that from him. In Colossians chapter 4, it's all about how Jesus calls us to be his laborers. There is purpose in him. And so I'm going to read from God's word, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2, through the end of the letter, verse 18. This is God's holy word. May he speak to us as we hear it read. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristocharis, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, 
have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the church from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray that God bless the preaching of his word. I actually want to encourage you, something that we do in our church is we have a time of personal prayer uh, where we ask God to speak to us. Let's just bow our heads, and I just want to ask you to have a time with the Lord and ask him to speak to you through preaching of his word. Now would you please pray also for me, that I would speak in a way that is clear and helpful and a benefit to you, and ultimately faithful to God. God, we are here to hear from you. Would you please speak to us through the preaching of your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may a far better sermon be heard than the one I'm actually going to give. I pray that you would do that so that these people here would all be edified. I pray you would do that so that your enemy would be horrified. And I pray you do that so that your name would be glorified. Praise things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the close of this letter, we see Paul giving some final instructions to the church in Colossae about how they are to interact with outsiders, people who don't share their faith in Jesus. And he calls them to pray for them and for him that they would have opportunities to declare the word, which he says is the mystery of Christ. Throughout this letter, Paul has shown that the mystery of Christ is what God has revealed in and through Jesus. It is what God has made known about how sinful people can be made right with the holy God. It's, it's about how Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we never could. So that he could then die on the cross in our place, giving his life for our life of sin. And then as we've already been singing about so gloriously this morning, how he rose to new life to prove that he truly is the son of God. And that for any who place their faith in him, we can be forgiven and experience eternal life in Christ. This is the mystery that's been revealed in Jesus. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And so as Paul tells these Colossians to pray for opportunities to declare the word, the mystery of Christ, and to pray for him also, he is showing that these final instructions are all about how God wants to use people to reach other people with the word of Christ. The way that God spreads the mystery of Jesus, the way he makes this revelation of Christ known is that he uses people to reach people. He did not have to work this way. God could have written his message in the stars. He, he could have spoken from the heavens. There are so many different things that God could do to make his message go forth. But God's chosen means to reaching lost men and women with the good news of Jesus, his chosen means is that he wants to use people to reach people. And so this closing section is all about sharing our faith. And when it comes to that topic, I think that sharing our faith is generally something that most Christians would say is a good thing to do. Like, not, not many Christians are going to argue and say, well, no, we're not supposed to share our faith with others. No, generally we think that's a good thing to do, but then think about our lives. Is that something that we actually do? 
I think it's very easy for us to have this idea that it's good to share our faith as long as someone else is doing it. We think it's a good idea, but our lifestyle suggests that maybe that idea is not something that we think actually applies to us. We, we assume it's for people who are more qualified. We assume it's for people who are good with their words. We assume it's for people who have an outgoing personality. And so we can have these idealized people in our mind, like they're great at sharing their faith, and so I'm not like them, so I'm just going to cheer them on and let them do that. But here's the big idea that I think God wants us to meditate on this morning from this text. I think God wants us to think about this. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. God is doing extraordinary things in this world to rescue lost men and women from their headlong pursuit into his Judgment because of their lifestyle of sin. God, God wants to rescue people from, from that. He, he, he wants to take them off their hell-bent course. He wants to interrupt their lives with his love. It's an extraordinary rescue. But the way that God wants to do this extraordinary rescue is not through extraordinary means. God works his extraordinary rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. And so, if you like sermon titles, you can entitle this one, The Ordinary Person's Guide to Sharing Christ. The Ordinary Person's Guide to Sharing Christ. And as, as we go through this, I have four things that this text kind of outlines to us about how ordinary people can live a lifestyle of sharing our faith with others. But as we go through this, I, I just want to say up front that I do not assume that everyone here has a faith to share. I do not assume that everyone here shares in the Christian faith. I'm, I, I certainly hope that there are people here and listening online who are not yet Christians because there's nowhere else that I'd rather you be, and I know there's nowhere else that the pastors of this church would have you be. Uh, th this part of why this church is here is not only to encourage Christians, it is to reach people with the love of God who might not yet identify as Christians. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And so as we talk about sharing our faith, I am going to be largely addressing Christians. And yet what I hope you hear today is I hope you hear God's heart of love for you and an invitation. God is on an extraordinary rescue mission. He wants to interrupt your life with the good news of his love. And maybe the person who sent you this link or the person who invited you out to church this morning, maybe they're the, the very people that God wants to use to work his extraordinary rescue in you. And so I pray that wherever we are, we would all find ourselves open to the fact that God might be speaking to us today. But as we make our way through this text, we really see four very ordinary things that Christians are to give ourselves to faithfully, and it's through giving ourselves to these things faithfully that God does his extraordinary work. We are to be faithful in prayer, faithful in character, faithful in speech, and faithful in friendships. So I'll go through each of these in turn. First, we are to be faithful in prayer. Verse 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So pray regularly, which is a good thing to do in general as a Christian. But this says, pray regularly for a door to be open for the word of Christ, which is the gospel. And so this is saying that we need to pray persistently. We need to continue steadfastly in prayer that God would work to reach lost men and women through us. We need to be persistent in it. Because often, it does not happen quickly. I, I, I think often, we can think about prayer. We pray for things, and we just expect it to be this instant 
you know, fix. We pray and we expect things to immediately happen and praise God when they do, but how often they don't immediately happen right when we pray. And so we can then get discouraged. Oh, this isn't working. We might not track much with what it means to share faith. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Wrong page. Um, like, why am I going back there? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but this says, this says pray steadfastly. This says pray steadfastly, which is another way to say pray stead, uh, persistently. Why? Because our prayers don't always have an instant fix. Like you don't need to be steadfast in prayer if you're always getting instant results. The fact that Paul is saying here you need to be persistent shows that we're not to expect things to happen right away. I had a friend who was praying for his mother to come to know Christ for over 40 years. He became a Christian in his 20s, and for 40 years he shared with her about Jesus, and she just kept saying, no, 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 until she was 80. But he never stopped praying because he knew that as soon as he stopped praying, that meant he had stopped believing that God could be at work. You see, prayer is what we do when we know that there's nothing that we can do, which is how we should always feel when it comes to sharing the gospel. We can't do anything in of ourselves. We need God to come. We need God to work. And so prayer is our acknowledgement that there is a God and that we're not him. And so persistent prayer is an expression of continued faith that God is still at work. He might not be answering things in our time frame, but he is still powerful to save. And so we need to continue to pray persistently and not give up. Not give up on believing that the mighty power of God, that his right arm, as scripture often talks about, is powerful to save. Like we can't close the book on someone when God is still writing their story. We need to pray persistently. And we need to pray dependently. I find it so encouraging that Paul asked for prayer that he'd be able to speak clearly. That makes me feel a lot better about the gaffe I just made a couple seconds ago (laughs) where I goofed up in my notes. Like if he needs help, shouldn't we all expect that we all need help? I mean, this is the apostle Paul This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Besides Jesus, no one has been more influential on Christianity than Paul. But he's not like, hey, I've got this. He's like, I'm the man. I've been to the third heaven. You know, I can speak on my own. No, he was a dependent man. He said, I need God's help. Would you please pray for me? Paul felt his need for the Lord. And so Paul felt his need for the Lord. How much more so should we? Often I think we can shrink back from sharing about Jesus because we just feel like we don't know what we're going to say. We feel inadequate, or at least I do, and so we can hold back from sharing. But I think this call to prayer is meant to reframe that feeling in our minds. When we feel inadequate, that shouldn't create a barrier to us sharing about Christ, but should create an awareness in us of our need for Christ. Our sense of inadequacy should cause us to turn to God in dependency. The next time you feel afraid to speak, instead of allowing that emotion to stop your mouth, no, let it be a reminder to pray. God, I need you. God, I need your help. See, fear comes from feeling inadequate, and the truth is that we are inadequate. Only God can open hearts to the truth of the gospel. And so when we are feeling that fear, 
We're actually feeling things that we should feel. We should feel inadequate. We should feel overwhelmed. Don't feel bad about that. No, instead understand what that feeling is meant to do. That feeling is, meant not, is not meant to stop you. That feeling is meant to turn you to God in prayer. It's meant to help us understand how much we need the Lord. We are to pray persistently. We are to pray dependently, and we are to pray watchfully. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Well, that means that when we pray, we should have an expectation that God is going to give us opportunities to share our faith. When we pray for open doors, we then need to be watchful for the doors that God is going to open. Friends, prayer should never be an excuse to be passive or spiritually negligent. No, it should put us on the balls of our feet. Okay, God, I've asked you to work today. I've asked you to open a door for me to share the gospel today. Now, help me to see the doors that you're opening. Prayer should create a watchful expectation for what God is going to do and for the steps that we're going to need to take as he opens the door for us. God opens us the door for us, but we still got to walk through it. One time I was reading my Bible in a local park near our house, and someone just walked by and said, I hate that book. Um, welcome to Philadelphia and how things go in my neighborhood. And that immediately felt like a little bit of an obstacle to sharing the faith, you know? Um, you know, so I just smile and wave and don't say anything, you know? But I was, I was just praying, God, is this actually a door that you're opening? And so what first looked like an obstacle, actually God turned into an opportunity because I just asked them, can you share with me why you feel that way? Something must have happened for you to have such a strong reaction. And my sincere question led to an honest conversation that went on for several minutes. And I had an opportunity in that conversation to ultimately share Christ with them. Now, they didn't fall to their knees and repent of their sins that moment. But it was really neat to see how when we're watchful, even things that might originally look like obstacles might actually be opportunities in disguise. Because when we're watchful, we're believing that God is at work. And so that creates in us an expectation to see things from the lens of, God, how are you at work? Give me faith to respond to that. We need to pray persistently, dependently. We need to pray watchfully, and we need to pray, it says, with thanksgiving. We need to pray with thanksgiving. Now, what is Paul giving thanks for? He's not giving thanks for what he wants to see happen, because it hasn't happened yet. What is he giving thanks for? He's giving thanks for what ha already has happened. He, he's, he's saying, please pray for doors to be opened, and pray thanksgiving for the doors that God already has opened. Friends, we pray to share our faith. Those are future-oriented prayers. God, help me to share my faith today. Would you work in this person's life today? They are future-oriented prayers. But what I think this praying thanksgiving is meant to show us is that we should not just pray future-oriented prayers. We also need to pray past prayers of thanksgiving. Because if we only pray future-oriented prayers, we only pray for what we want God to do, then our focus will always be on what hasn't happened yet. And honestly, that can be discouraging. 
It's, again, it's good and it's important to pray for God to open doors. It's important to pray for loved ones that we want to see come to know Jesus. It's important to pray for coworkers and neighbors that we want to have opportunities to share our faith with. It's important to pray for what hasn't happened yet. But if we're only praying for what hasn't happened yet, then we're only focusing on, in some ways, the negative, what God hasn't done yet. But if we want to have our faith built for what God can do, then what we need to do is look back with thanksgiving at what God has already done. We can't just pray future prayers. We have to pray past prayers, thanking God for what he already has done in people's lives. Because few things build our faith more in believing how God will work than when we thank God for how he already has been at work. And so if you want to grow in your faith to share your faith, spend some time thanking God for your salvation. Spend some time thanking God for the testimonies of the people that you know. Spend some time thanking God for your church, that it is here, and it's been praising, uh, praising God and preaching the gospel for over 20 years. Right? We can't just pray asking for what we want God to do. We have to pray and give Him some thanks for what He has already done. And so God loves to do His extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. And so Crossway, be faithfully ordinary in prayer. Pray persistently, dependently, watchfully, and thankfully. Second, be faithful in character. Faithful in character. Verse 5 tells us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Walking is a common metaphor in the Bible for how we are to live our lives, how we are to conduct ourselves. And so what does it mean to walk, to live in wisdom? Well, Proverbs 4.11 says, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. Wisdom is uprightness, which is another way that the Bible talks about living with obedience to God. And so walking in wisdom means living with godly character. Commentator F.F. Bruce says this about this passage. He says, the reputation of the gospel is bound up with behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the Word of God can see the lives of those that do and will form their judgment accordingly. When I was in that country earlier this spring, where, again, it's illegal to share your faith, um, as I was talking to the pastors, it was just amazing to see how their churches were all growing. Now people are coming to faith in Christ. And so I asked them, like, how is that happening? Like, walk me through your strategy about how you share your faith when it's illegal to share your faith. And they actually didn't have this, like, really incredible strategy. Here's, here's their strategy. They're like, we're just intentional to build relationships with people who don't believe in Jesus. And then as they spend time with us, they see the difference in us, and they ask questions about it. And so at that point, we're not sharing our faith. We're just giving them a reason for the questions that they're asking us. So they ask us, why don't you speak with the same vulgarity that we do? Why are you honest and kind and serve others and put their needs first? Why don't you watch the same things that other people do or listen to everything that they're doing? Why do you seem to be filled with joy and peace even when you're going through hard things? Right? They, just, they said they ask why we're different, and that gives us an open door to share about how Jesus makes a difference. They aren't doing anything flashy. In many ways, they aren't doing anything that is that hard. They're just being ordinary Christians. And their character is giving them opportunities to share their faith. And I think that's a great illustration of what Paul is talking about here. 
our godly character, walking in wisdom with outsiders, is to something that gives us open doors to share our faith about Jesus. Paul says that in this, we are to make the best use of our time. That phrase, the best use of our time, can really mean one of two things, and I think it actually means both. On the one hand, it can mean life is short, and so don't waste your time living in sin, but spend your life pursuing God and his purposes. Like, live with godly character now, because it matters now. Life is short. Make the best use of your time. But making the best use of the time can also mean discerning the times that we are living in and considering carefully where our culture is at and the opportunity that God is giving us in this time for Christians to be most impactful with our character. And so I think right now we're actually living in a tremendous time of history. I think we are living in a tremendous time of incredible opportunity. The reality is that we are more and more living in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity, where you can be just sitting there minding your own business and people walk by and say they hate the Bible. For many years in our country, things were not like that. For many years in our country, in fact, actually basic moral norms used to be in line with biblical ethics. But now our our culture has largely redefined right and wrong. In fact, our culture doesn't even want to think in categories of right and wrong. And so this puts Christianity on the outside of culture and not in step with the mainstream anymore. And in large part, it seems that Christians are taking one of two unbiblical responses. One, they get combative, or two, they compromise. Right? There can be this temptation to get combative. What is our country coming to? I got to fight for our rights. It's us against culture. We got to stack the courts. We got to stack the right politicians. We just got to fight to to keep this a Christian nation, which questionable whatever it was. I'm not going to get that this morning. But our temptation is just to get combative. Or there's temptation to get to compromise and just to change or avoid the things that Scripture clearly says that are not in step with our cultural norms. It's Christians combative with culture, or Christians compromise with culture. But either way, I think both miss out on the opportunity that God gives us to be different. Because Jesus told us not to be combative, and he told us not to compromise, but this is what he said. When people get a, come against us, how we respond as Christians, our Savior said, Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, how Christians are to meet a hostile culture is with the character of love. And love refuses to compromise. Because if we believe God's word is true, then we are not going to love anyone if we're lying about what God has said. Love refuses to compromise. But love also refuses to be combative. Because God's word tells us that anger and outrage accomplish nothing, but that it is kindness that leads to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. And so love means being both unyielding on truth and unwavering in tender hardness. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity in this time, in this day, to make the best use of our time by displaying what Jesus has taught us about having true compassionately convictional character of love to those who are outside our faith. I love the testimony of Razir Butterfield, who 
was professor at Syracuse University in liberal studies and was a leader in the LGBTQ movement back in the early 90s. She wrote an article for the New York Times about Christianity and their bigotry towards homosexuals. And she said in response to that article, she got mail, a lot of mail, and she could put all the letters that she received in one of two piles. She says that in the one pile, I could put people who supported me. In the other pile, I could put people who hated me. And every letter could fit in one of those two piles, supporters or haters, until she got a letter from a pastor named Ken. She says that Ken's letter kind of sat on her desk for a while. She could not easily file it because on the one hand, Ken did not agree with her stance on homosexuality, but gave a well-reasoned biblical response to God's purpose for sex. And so she couldn't put it in the support pile. And yet it was so kind and so gracious, and so compassionate, and so generous that she couldn't in good conscience put it in the hater pile also. In that letter, Ken invited her to coffee, and so after a few weeks of chewing on it, she eventually took him up on the offer, expecting it to turn into a combative conversation, and then she'd know where to put him. But it didn't go that way. They actually ended up becoming very good friends. After a period of 10 years of friendship, Rosaria eventually gave her life to Christ. That's walking in wisdom with an outsider. Ken's godly character opened a door for gospel witness. And that's what God wants for all of us. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. So, Crossway Church, please, let's all be people who are just ordinary Christians who are faithful in our character, and love others as Christ has loved us. Third, we are to be faithful in speech. As we talk about godly character, we need to understand it's not enough to only show someone godly character. We also have to verbally share the gospel. Paul asked for prayer that he would declare the gospel clearly, which means that he is speaking about it, not just trying to show it with his good deeds. Verse 6 says that we need to have salty speech. Now, when we hear that word salty in our culture, that means that someone is usually being unkind, ungracious. Wow, it's really harsh. What, you're so salty today. Do you guys say that up here too? Is that okay? Um, that's the exact opposite of what salty speech meant back in ancient Near East culture. Commentator David Garland helps us understand when he writes, Seasoned with salt was used to refer to witty, amusing, clever, humorous speech. Godliness is not to be equated with stodginess. Flat formulas or lifeless platitudes do not capture the gospel's excitement. Or as my friend Craig Cabanis, who's a Trinity Fellowship Church's pastor in Texas, said, we should share the, gospel, the good news. We should share the good news like it is good news. We should share the good news like it is good news. Having salty speech means that we should be excited about what we're talking about. And so that implies that we are what? That implies that we are talking. It's not enough to only focus on being a godly person that love others well. We must verbally use our words to share about Christ. Author Donald Whitney tells a story about a man who became a Christian. And when he did, he went into his office the next day and nervously told his coworker about it. You know, he's trying to share his faith. And much to his surprise, his coworker said, that's great. I'm a Christian, and I've been praying for you for years. The new Christian said, really? 
You're the reason I haven't become a Christian for so many years. The guy's like, how can that be? I've tried to be so nice to you. I've tried to be such a good example to you. And this new Christian said, well, that's exactly right. You have been so nice. You have been so kind. You have been so joyful. You've been such a great person that I thought, I don't need Jesus. I need to learn just how to be more like you. Friends, if we don't use our words, then people might get confused and think that we are great. But no one ever went to heaven thinking that we're great. What people need to know is that we are not so great, but there's a Savior who is great. They need to not only see that we are different, they need to hear that it is Jesus who makes us different. And the only way they will hear is if we tell them. And so this call that we saw in point two to have godly character, that call should never become an excuse to close our lips and not share about Jesus. Our godly lives should be a platform from which we then are able to share the good news of Christ. And then as we share about it, we are to share about it, not just as a factual thing, but with salty speech, with excitement. And so what that tells me is that what we are to share with our lips first needs to start with our hearts. Sharing about Christ does not start with a renewed commitment to share about Christ. It actually starts with a renewal of affections for Christ. God has wired us to be people who care about what we share about. And we share about what we care about. Like, what we naturally have affection for, you go out to a good restaurant, your sports team is doing well, you watch a show that you like, what happens when you see someone, you just naturally start talking about what you're excited about. And so when this is telling us to have salty speech, to have ex- speech that is excited about Jesus, what that's saying is that in order for us to have that kind of salty speech, that excited speech, well, we need to grow in our affections for Christ. If you want to grow in sharing about Jesus, then we first need to grow in caring for Jesus. This is not just about us trying harder, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a better job today. And we just lay this guilt trip on ourselves as Christians to, to be better at sharing our faith. That will not work. God wants to do a deeper work in our hearts. He wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants us to savor Jesus like a fine meal. So that when we come into contact with people who do not know him, we cannot but help share about him. And so, friends, may we be people who do what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 3 and pray for the Spirit to strengthen us, that we would know, not just know about, but that we would experientially know in deepening ways the width and length and height and depth of the love of God for us in Christ so that we might then be filled with all the fullness of God. And for the fullness that we have received is that fullness that we then share. It's as we're filled with God's love for us that, that gives us a love to share about his love with others. And notice, not just share about his love like in general, you know, um, but actually share about his love with individuals. L- look again at verse 6. It says, let your speech be always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to have an answer for each person. 
which means the individual people might need a different answer. The truths of God's word are all the same, but that does not mean that what each person needs to hear is the exact same. And so how we are to share the gospel with someone who's feeling a profound sense of loneliness should be different than how we share the gospel with someone who's feeling a tremendous amount of self-righteousness. The truth of the gospel is unchanging, but how we apply that truth to people's lives needs to be tailored to their individuality. And so I think being faithful to speak means we also need to be faithful to listen. We need to be faithful to not just come and go through a track with someone so we can check off, I shared the gospel today. No, we need to not start just with what we need to say. We first need to start with knowing what we need to say, which means we need to know what we need to hear in order to speak that truth into their hearts. We need to listen and draw people's hearts that we might know how to carefully apply the truth of the gospel to the place that they're hurting the most. Francis Schaeffer, who is arguably one of the most effective people in the last 100 years at sharing uh, his faith, he was asked one time, if you only had an hour to share about Christ, you know, what would you say to someone? This is what he said. If I have only an hour with someone, I'll spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. Friends, if we want to share with people, then we need to learn to listen to people so that we may know how to share with people. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithful, faithfulness. So be faithful in speech. Finally, we are to be faithful in friendship. I'm going to make this point rather quickly, but I think it is important to note. In verses 7 through 18, Paul gives a long list of names. And there's all kinds of different people on this list. All kinds of people who honestly normally would never be in relationship with each other. So on this list, you have Onesimus, who was a fugitive who had stolen from his boss and was on the run when he met Paul. You have Mark, who was someone who abandoned Paul on a previous mission trip. And so you've got a former criminal. You've got a former failure. You've got Gentiles, so non-Jews, Tychicus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. You've got Jewish people, uh, Aristocharis, Mark, Justice. In the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles were not friends. <laughs> there was deep racial hatred between those people groups. And so there's a lot of things going on in this list, but here's one thing that, that's a consistent theme. The gospel makes extraordinary friends. The gospel of Jesus brings people together who normally would never spend time with one another, and yet in their differences from one another and the unity they experience with Christ, through those differences and unity, strong gospel mission can be done. And really what Paul is showing us here is that he was not a one-man show. He never did ministry alone. And what he's doing here in Colossians is really how he closes almost all his letters. He almost always closes his letters by talking about his fellow workers. Because he wanted it to be clear that he never did ministry alone. The implication being that we're not to do ministry alone either. If Paul needed a team, we need a team too. And this is really the pattern throughout Scripture, right? You've got Moses, but he's given Aaron and then the priests. You have David, but then he has his mighty men. You have Jesus, but then he has the 12 disciples. And then when he sends them out, he sends them out two by two. 
point is here, friends, God can do so much more through us together than what we could ever do by ourselves individually. And so how does this work in the context of sharing our faith? Well, look at how Paul describes the roles that these friends have. In verse 8, he calls Tychicus an encourager. He says Onesimus was one of them, meaning he was a native who could help contextualize the gospel message to them. He talks about how Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice have been a comfort to him, which means if you're going to share the gospel with people, you're going to need to be comforted a lot because there's a lot of heartbreak in that ministry at times. He talks about how Paphras was a prayer warrior. He talks about how Luke and Demas are dearly loved by Paul. They're just his close friends. What we're seeing in this list is that these individuals all have individual strengths, but it's as they came together in those individual strengths that God did extraordinary things. And so the model that Paul is holding out to us here is not to settle for a small American dream. We just think about ourselves and what we see happen in our lives. No, what this is calling us to, by seeing these different people's names, it's calling us to live for a God-sized dream that can't be accomplished just by ourselves as individuals, but it's going to require us to partner together with other people. We need to build deep and lasting friendships with other Christians so that together we can encourage one another and we can be used together to share Christ. We're going to need people who can encourage us. We're going to need people who can pray for us. We're going to need people who, you know, maybe, maybe we don't have the answers, but this person's really smart and they seem to have a lot of answers. I'm just going to bring you over to dinner for them, you know? Maybe we're not good at making dinner, but like meals do open doors. And so we're going to partner together with a friend who's, who's good at sh- making meals. And hey, hey, we're coming over to your house for dinner tonight, as Jesus so often said, right? Like, like we need to have friends who have strengths that complement our weaknesses, so that we're not held back by our weaknesses, but instead can walk forward even more effectively in sharing our faith with others. And so I just want to ask you, who's your crew? Who are you on mission with? Who are the people who know how to pray for you and with you, who are encouraging you, who are being a comfort to you and helping you share this message? If you don't have names that readily come to mind, then my encouragement to you is press more into this church community and get connected here in a deeper way. It takes time to develop good gospel friends that you can partner with to reach others. And your schedule will never give you that time. If we don't set priorities, someone else will always be setting them for us. And so friends, it's worth prioritizing Christian fellowship. It's worth prioritizing Christian friendship. Because what God can do through us is so much better than what God can do just through me. It's worth taking time. It's vital to take a time. Because God does more through a we than he does through a me. And so as we come to close, you know, these things we've been talking about, none of them are that extraordinary, are they? Prayer. Pursuing godly character. Speaking about what we care about. Having friendship with other Christians. This is all pretty ordinary stuff, which means that any of us can get in on it. Friends, you don't need God to change anything about you in order for him to start using you. You don't need someone else to share the gospel with your friends. God has you where you are because he wants to use you, and he's given you all you already need to be effectively used by him. God's calling you not to try to be extraordinary. He's calling you just to be faithful. He's calling you to be consistently 
ordinary. An ordinary drop of water might not seem like it makes a big difference when it hits a massive boulder. But if that drop continues consistently, that boulder doesn't stand a chance. It will crack and break over time, every single time. It's a crossway. My encouragement to you is to keep on being as ordinary as drops of water, but keep being that ordinary drop with faithful consistency and watch what God will do as he breaks through stony hearts. God loves to do his extraordinary work of rescue through ordinary people taking ordinary steps of faithfulness. May you be such a people for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that while there's so many things you could do to reach others, so many things, honestly, that seem so much more effective, <laughs> you've given us the privilege of carrying forth the most sacred message that there ever is, that sinful people are loved by the holy God who became sin for us so that we can be made right with you. God, thank you for this message you've given us to share. And thank you that we don't have to try to be something different than who we already are. Lord, thank you that we can just be consistently ordinary and that you know how to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God, I thank you for the extraordinary things that have already happened in this church over the past 20 years. Thank you for the lives that have been changed, for the people who have been saved through coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I praise you for that, Lord God, and I just pray your blessing upon this church. Lord, I pray that you would help each person here to continue steadfastly in being consistently ordinary, that you would use them to do extraordinary work in people's lives by changing them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise for your glory. In the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you.